Thank you for joining us today for the ministry of the word at Foundation Church. We pray that what you hear today will be as much of a blessing for you as it was for the people of our congregation. Amen. Remain standing for just a few moments here. As I read for you my text from the book of Acts, chapter 2, I'm going to read the first 13 verses, and I hope I'll get through all of them today uh, as we are teaching through the book of Acts. Our series is called Foundation Stones, and we're going to try to get to another one of the stones, stone number four in uh, the, the series. I don't know how many there will be, uh, maybe enough to build a whole building, who knows. So uh, let's hear from Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and they marveled saying one to another, Behold, are not all that speak Galileans and how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers of Mesopotamia in Judea in Cappadocia in Pontius and Asia Phrygia and Pamphylia in Egypt and in the lower parts of Libya and about Cyrene the strangers of Rome Jews and proselytes Cretes and Arabians we do hear them speak in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and they were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up at the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, You men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken unto my words. I actually read one more verse <laughs> than I meant to read, all right? Uh, but we'll survive it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for loving us, for giving us the opportunity to hear your word, to learn about it, to understand it. We pray that you would speak to us, though, that you would illuminate it to our situation that we're in right now, to our lives that we're living in, the place of your advancing kingdom. And we pray that you would teach us from your word and that something that we would hear today would spark in us something new. And it would change us to make us more like you. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Two hundred and forty-seven years ago, this past July, a 33-year-old Thomas Jefferson, one of the youngest members of the Second Continental Congress, rose early the first Thursday of the month, July the 4th, 1776, with his notebook in his hand. Perhaps he was quietly trying not to wake his 10-month-old daughter, Patsy, or his wife, Martha, of two years, who was 
soon expecting their second little child. But at 6 a.m., Jefferson fastidiously checked the thermometer, which he had just purchased, and recorded that it was 68 degrees. It was certainly not the most important thing he did that day, Sister Joy. You're smiling because it's funny. You're like, what in the world is Pastor Mark talking about this morning? He had recently become his habit, though, of recording the measurement several times a day. On this day, he was a bit busier than normal, having just completed writing the Declaration of Independence for our nation and signing it. The high he recorded later on that day, incidentally and providentially, was cooler than normal and appropriate for history. The high was 76 degrees. It, on that day, it had gone up to above 100 degrees on <laughs> Uh, normally in July, as they say, hotter than the 4th of July, but on that special day, 76 degrees. Isn't that kind of funny? It had been a hot summer in Philadelphia as the founding fathers, which is what we call them now, feverishly worked to declare their independence as a nation from the British. The legal separation of the 13 colonies of what would one day be called the United States of America from Great Britain had actually taken place two days earlier on July the 2nd when the Second Continental Congress had voted to declare the new nation independent. After voting on this, Congress turned its attention to writing a declaration, a statement explaining what and why they had made this decision which had been given to a committee of five with Thomas Jefferson as its principal writer. During 17 days in isolation from June the 11th until June the 28th of that year, Jefferson spent in an upper room at 700 Market Street, now known as Declaration House and within walking distance of what would later be called Independence Hall. John Adams, who was among these founding fathers and would become the second president with Thomas Jefferson serving as his vice president, would say these words about this special day. He said, the second day of July, 1776, will be the most memorable epoch in the history of America. I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as a great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts and devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade and shows and games and sports, guns, bells, bonfires, illuminations from one end of the continent to the other from this time forward. That is what I think is going to happen. Was he right? He was right. He was off by two days, right? He thought they would celebrate the second when they had made the ruling, but no, we celebrated it the fourth because that was the day the declaration was read out loud and we, we declared our independence from Great Britain. Interestingly enough, and I throw this in as a little fun fact, I'm, I guess I'm filled with craziness about little fun facts like some of those I just shared with you about Jefferson I think that's very interesting 
But interestingly enough, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, they were the only two signatures of the Declaration of Independence who served as presidents of the United States. Do you know that they both died on the same day? Do you guys know this? Do you guys know what day it was? July the 4th, 1826, on the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. You see, dates and stories like this are very important to a nation, and so is the regular remembrance of them. And God understood this long before we did. When he gave his people their law and established them as a nation under God, indivisible, he commanded that they celebrate seven feasts a year. So they would not forget God who had made them and saved them from their sin and slavery, and they would not forget who they were. You know, that's part of it too. It's not just that our nation wanted us to remember that we were a nation, but the people need to remember we declared it. And it was so. We are the United States of America. We don't need to forget who we are. Not just what was done then by them, but who we are right now. Three of these feasts, according to the law, which you can read in the book of Leviticus, states that, these, that, that the, uh, if you were a man and you were a Jew, it was required of God that you travel to Jerusalem and gather around the people of God from wherever they were in the world. These feasts were, these three feasts were called, one was called Sukkot, which you might know as the Feast of Booths, which happens at their, right after their new year, okay? Then there is the feast called Pesach, which is known as Passover, and we all know what that's about, right? The remembering of how the, the death angel passed over Israel's firstborn while taking and destroying the lives of the firstborn of Egypt. And the final of the three of these pilgrimage feasts is Shavat, also known as Pentecost. And today we're going to be talking about Pentecost, the Pentecost of the old, the nation of Israel, and the Pentecost of the new. When I was talking to some people recently about this, they said... Pentecost is in the Old Testament? I thought it was in the book of Acts and in the New. I'm like, well, yeah, it is. And, and you, might, you might see this. You guys like this painting? Isn't that a pretty painting? It's actually quite a bit bigger than that. And I like that Josh picked the one that had the, the young girl's face in it. Because this special day wasn't for, you know, old men in fancy robes and they weren't all ordered in a certain way. They didn't have halos on their head. I, don't, I, I really don't like that kind of art. Because I think that the day of Pentecost probably looked a lot more like that. People from every age, they were gathered around, they were waiting, and something began to happen, which we're going to talk about. And when it did, they were amazed and they marveled. They were just regular people. My sermon title today is Suddenly, everybody say suddenly, 1400 Feasts of Pentecost. And it is meant as a way to recall the deep history of the miraculous and meaningful day that happened in the early church and the depths that you may not even know existed for them. Pentecost was certainly not new for the Jews. When we come to Acts chapter 2 verse 1, we find ourselves somewhere close to, guys, check this out, 
1,479 anniversaries, Stephen, of the day of Pentecost were celebrated by Israel. Is that a lot? Do you know we've only celebrated a couple hundred anniversaries of the Declaration of Independence here in America, and it is ingrained in our society. It is a staple. If you didn't have it, if you didn't celebrate it, it affects our country. Our country needs to shoot off fireworks and have a big day to remember our independence, to fill our streets with, uh, you know, military parades or whatever it is, and band, marching bands from high school, right? But when we come here to Acts chapter 2, we are 1,479 years of Israel celebrating Pentecost over and over and over and over and over. So everybody say, this was not new for Israel. So it might be new for you suddenly, right? What happened on that day is amazing. But when I said 1,400 feasts of Pentecost, it kind of gives you a mind a little bit at the speed at which God works. God had been foreshadowing for 1,479 Pentecosts that something one day was going to happen. And on this day, it did. As we learned over the past three weeks, Luke, the Greek physician, the Gentile convert to Christianity, who is writing this narrative for the disciple, his disciple Theophilus, when Jesus rose from the dead, he told him, that because he had been given all power that they were to go into all the world and preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. Remember that? That's where we've been. In fact, that's the first stone, right, in our foundation stones. Go into all the world. And second, he told them, go, but don't go until you first do what? Go to Jerusalem. You can't go and do what you're going to go do that I've called you to do in the world unless you go to Jerusalem and you are clothed with the power to do it. That's the second stone that we covered. After he told them he was leaving them, he would not be with them like he had been with them. And before they would go into the world to go back to Jerusalem, they went to the upper room. This is the room where they had celebrated the last pilgrimage feast, which had happened some 40-some days earlier. You see, the reason uh, Pentecost is called Pentecost, you may not know this, is that it is 50 days between Passover and the next feast, 50 days. So... For you people that like numbers and you like to remember this kind of things, it is seven weeks. Seven times seven is, come on, for all of you people that did, did math in school, seven times seven is 49, right? So seven, seven weeks between Passover and Pentecost. Well, what happened? That's what we're going to talk about. What, what, what were they commemorating on Pentecost for 1,479 years in a row? We know what they were commemorating on Passover, but what were they commemorating on Pentecost? Because they absolutely were commemorating something. In fact, they were celebrating the most cataclysmic event, even more cataclysmic than the Passover. Jesus did... Jesus died on 
Passover. He was the Passover lamb. These things that happened in Jewish history and in the Jewish calendar were always pointing toward the coming of the Messiah. So he died purposely and providentially on Passover as the Passover lamb, and he rose from the dead. The Bible tells us he showed himself alive for 40 days during this seven weeks. See how the 40 days fits in there? He rose from the dead, so we get, he died. So he rose on the third day, we've got three days. So he showed himself alive after his passion, 40 days. Now we've got 43 days. See how we're fitting in here? See, all this is happening. All this is the history of what is going on. As they waited, these seven weeks were called by the Jews for the last 1,479 years before this. They were called the weeks of waiting. And what were they waiting? They were waiting for the next feast. And they were holding back. You see, the, the, the Feast of Passover was, it had a dual purpose. One of the purposes of the Feast of Passover was to celebrate the barley harvest. And they would bring grain and barley, the, the, the grain barley, it ripens earlier, and they would bring it to, um, they would bring it to, to the priests and bring it to the temple as an offering to God. And they would make bread, barley bread, or they would give the grain itself. But what they were celebrating was the wheat harvest on Pentecost. And Joy, you know what they did? They took wheat and, they, the, and it wasn't just any wheat. Think of the significance of this. Think of growing and planting and hoping and praying and your wheat is growing out there and it's growing out there. And the very first the stuff that you begin to harvest, you take it and what do you do with it? You give it to God. See, that's the, that's the principle of first fruits. We grow and we grow and grow. And that first tomato that we pick, you know, we go, oh, that's, wow, this is amazing. The principle is that we give our very best in our very first to who? To, to God. That's why, that's why when we are paid and when we get money, you know, we give the first of it to the Lord. It is a way of showing God that God is that important to us. But what they did, uh, Jesse, is they would take the wheat and they would grind it up and they would make it into two loaves of bread that had leaven in them. And so they would be, you know, they would be the kind of bread we like, like this kind of bread over here, leaven. And they would bring, they would make bread and they would bring it to the priest, this fresh bread. Could you, wouldn't you like being a priest in those days? I like fresh bread, but imagine all day long, the whole nation's bringing in fresh bread, fresh bread, fresh bread, and all the priests are eating. And I don't know if they had a big tray of butter in the back and they were slapping it and they were eating. I don't know exactly what was going on, but, but they were getting bread. They weren't taking it and setting it on the side and setting it on fire, okay? You see, the offerings that the Lord gave, they were eaten and they were enjoyed. The meat that was cooked, the animals, there was a big feast. We think of this in, I think somehow we've messed this all up. Oh no, he's cutting them and they're just bleeding out on the ground and then God's burning them and, and, and oh, there's all this waste. No, this was a feast. They were eating and they were celebrating and some of the meat that you offered, you put a hook in and you brought some of it out and you and your family ate it and the priest's family that was there ate it and there were hundreds of priests and this was going on. This was an magnificent time it must have smelled amazing more amazing than Stringtown Road at dinner time when you drive by and you're like oh smoky bones and oh oh Charlie's and oh red Robin and oh the hibachi and they're all one you know I don't know maybe you don't like food like I do you know I know Billy does Billy Billy likes food like I do he enjoys it 
But as they waited, they, they, they were, this was what Jews were doing. While they were in the upper room praying, these other Jews were getting the, they were coming from all over the world and they were coming to this one place. Isn't this kind of cool, Titus? And they were coming from far, far away. Some of them had traveled days and several days. And see, you know, we don't understand what it means to give to God like this. Not only were they giving to God, taking off and, and traveling, but they had the travel time there and the travel time back. And they had, all of that was lost time for earning money and for working. They, but they did this to the Lord and it took them days to get there and days to get back. And during this time, they had to figure out how to live and how to eat and how whatever, but they were giving it all to the Lord. It wasn't just that they gave just a certain amount every week. It was that they were giving, they were doing stuff all year long. Many have come to see the hidden meaning of these two loaves that the Jews would have no idea of. This meaning of this coming, and, and I'm going to tell you what they were celebrating in just a moment here, but it, these two loaves came to represent the two loaves, one being the Jewish people and the other one being the Gentiles. And so God was going to do something special. He was foreshadowing, and we'll get into that a little bit later. One of the foundation stones that will help us understand what the role that Israel plays in the coming and the continuing of the story of the church they are still part of the story. I know right now with what's going on in Israel, people are wondering, everyone's talking about end times and they're talking about is the end of the world coming or how should we think about the Jews or, or Israel? And some people say, yeah, they're the people that crucified Jesus and, and they rejected Jesus, so forget about them. Others are, oh no, they're the ones. And, and there's a lot of talk about it, but we're gonna get into a, just a little bit of that today about what the Bible says about it. So let's get into it. Day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2 verse 1. We'll start with one. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. So let me explain it to you. The day of Pentecost. So think about it. What was the greatest, most significant act in, the, in Israel's history that happened 50 days after Passover? Does anybody know what it was? You know what happened? So if you think of the story there, there, they're in Egypt, they're set free, they cross the Red Sea, they go over in the wilderness. Do you remember what happens next? So they're over there and, you know, there's many things happening. They get thirsty. God has Moses strike a rock and they, they you know, they're drinking from this split rock of Horeb and God is with them and he's there with a pillar of fire keeping them warm at night and a cloud uh, covering so they don't get sunburnt and he's taking care of his people and they're there. And then God says what? We just read it in Exodus chapter 24. God says to Moses, hey Moses, I want you to get Aaron. I want you to get uh, his sons and I want you to come over to this big mountain here and they're gonna hang out here, but you're gonna go on up. You guys remember this? And so the fire comes down, right, on the mountain and Moses goes up in the fire and for 40 days and 40 nights, he's in the fire. What's going on there? Anybody know? He's giving them their law. He has written for them their declaration of independence from the world's government. He is establishing for them a holy nation. He is giving them their law. 
He is saying, you who are not a people are become my people. He elected and he chose them and he formed them into a nation. And he said, you from henceforth, this is my law. I am your king and this is the kingdom and I will establish it forever. And this is the law that will govern you as a people and it will make you who you are. Israel, boom, my people. He delivered the law. This happened 50 days from Passover. And so the Jews for 1,479 years remembered that Moses had, they, the way that they pictured it, you know how we, you know, we do things that we do, you know, high school bands are playing. When they took, God had told them to do these two loaves. You know what they did? They said, you know, we got an idea. So we'll remember it. We're going to take these two loaves and we're going to wrap more dough around them and we're going to form them into a ladder and we're going to bring these to God and they'll look like a ladder so we can remember that Moses took a ladder to God and the rules and the laws and the statutes and the judgments that he gave us. He didn't get them from his own wisdom. He got them when he was on a ladder to heaven. Isn't that kind of cool? Anybody want to make a, a bread ladder? I will eat it. I will put butter on it. And I will remember Moses and the law. Nobody's smiling as big as I would hope. Maybe I'm a little hungry this morning. They were in one accord. They were praying. And if you remember, they had just asked Jesus, are you going to establish your kingdom? Remember, he had, they were asking him this question. You see, this was in their minds. They're like, now, wait a minute. Passover, we know, now we know what it was about. Jesus explained what it was. It was about the Messiah is coming. We didn't know that he had to die, that he was going to be like a Passover lamb. But wait a minute, something's coming. And when we see that Pentecost is coming, wait a minute, there was the giving of the law. And they gave the law. Are you going to deliver the law and be our king? So they asked, what did they say? Acts chapter 1, right? We read it. It says... Are you going to establish it now? See, they were sort of looking ahead. Kind of like sometimes when you're in a sermon, you're like, wait a minute, where's he going with this? Right? And they were wondering themselves. Are you going to establish it? And he says, you don't worry about that. You don't worry about what I'm doing right now. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. You just go to Jerusalem and wait. So they were there. They were in unity. They were in one accord. And what were they doing? Anybody remember what they were doing there? I'll read it for you from Acts chapter 12 or Acts chapter 1 verses 12 through 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from a mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey or about one mile. And when they were come in, they went into an upper room where they abode Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon Zelotes and Judas, the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. Everybody say in prayer and supplication. So wonder how they did that. They all continued. There's 120 of them in a room and they all are doing what? What are they doing all at the same time? They're all praying. Thank you. These all, everybody say these all. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. The women were praying, even Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brethren. So do you think that what they were doing was taking turns praying? Anybody think that's what they were doing? Think they were there sitting there on the day of Pentecost like, you know, Christina has written a prayer today and she's going to offer up that prayer. And go ahead, Christina, and, she'd, and we'd wait till she got done. We'd all go, amen. You think that's what was going on? 
That is not what was going on. They all continued in supplication, in calling out to God in prayer. If you've never really been a part of this, it's actually something very beautiful and something amazing, something we don't actually do in our church these days. When I say these days, I'm talking about Foundation Church. Lots of churches do it. You see, they had obeyed the Lord. They were in the holy city. They were waiting. And while they waited, they were praying. I'm not sure a great case can be made for prayer that involves only one person praying at a time as though that is the only way that we can pray. You will not see this modeled at all in the book of Acts. Now, there certainly is time for that. We remember when Paul is explaining later on about speaking in tongues, he says, well, what if somebody comes and prays in a tongue and you don't understand? How can they say amen, right? So there are times when we are praying and someone needs to know what we're saying. I mean, if Jonathan prays, and Lord, I pray that, that Mark's house burns down and that, uh, you know, a squirrel uh, gets in his attic and torments him 24-7 and he never sleeps. Like, am I going to say amen to that? No. I'm actually not going to say amen, just in case you're wondering. I like Jonathan. I think he's a fine fellow. But you can't say amen to that, right? And so the apostle Paul, later when he's teaching about tongues, he's explaining that speaking in tongues and pray. So are we, you know, to pray in tongues? I'm going to pray in tongues and no one's going to have any idea what I'm going to say in the church right now. And you're all supposed to say amen. You have no idea what I'm saying. Should you say amen? In fact, when Jesse speaks in French in our church when he's praying, because he's done that a few times, uh, I'm a little funny, uh, and so it's hard for me to say amen to that part of the prayer. I don't know what he's saying. He could be saying in French, you know, uh, Mark's a really bad dude. Would you smite him with the lightning bolt? Like, I don't know what he's saying. I'm hoping that's not what he's saying. But what I'm saying is I can't say amen, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? And that is, but when they prayed here, they were all praying. They continued praying and supplication, and they were calling out to God. Have you ever been in a room where everybody's praying? I sure have. It's a wonderful thing. If you've never been a part of it, it can be a very beautiful thing. Everyone praying for the same thing. Everyone's heart turned to the same direction, going up to God like smoke and incense. I could imagine us praying for Israel together. They had their horrible, they call it their darkest day, you know, in modern history. They were attacked on all sides. Little children have been decapitated. Women have been brutalized. Twenty-five Americans have been killed. I guess we could maybe feel worse since they're from America. Really? Imagine if we all gathered together and we prayed for them. When we did, actually, we'd all pray the same thing. Lord, what do we want? We want God to save Israel. We want God to fill Israel with this Holy Spirit. We want God to forgive Israel of its sins and lead him in the paths of righteousness, right? Isn't that what we want? Couldn't we pray for that? Would there be anything wrong with praying that God would save Israel? I hope not. Paul prays it right in the Bible. Lord, God, save my brothers. If I could even be a curse so that they could be saved, save them. Paul prays that right in the book of Romans, showing his passion for them. 
Imagine if we got the news that on the way to the church, one of our precious families was involved in some sort of a, a traffic accident and the, a helicopter had flown them through life flight and they were there. I would hope we wouldn't just go, well, you know, hope it all works out for them. I'd hope the church would rally around and we would pray. We wouldn't have to take turns praying, but we could all say, we're just going to pray. Let's all pray. And everybody could be calling out to God together. Oh, God, Lord, be with the surgeon's hands. Oh, Lord, comfort their family. Oh, God, be with them. Lord, we love them. Remember how the church gathered together when uh, the, the woman of God died? And she was such a beautiful, lovely woman of God that added to the church. The church got together and they prayed. And, they, and you know what? God touched this woman and raised her up. You think when they got together, they're like, Jonathan, could you pray for sister so-and-so? Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm saying there is more. You know how there's glorious things? There is what? There are, there's more glorious. God has more and more for us. When we pray, we're talking to God. He can hear all of us individually. He isn't confused by our voices. We might be. You can't say amen to what everybody's saying in the room, but... Hearing those you love and respect call out to God can be invigorating and inspiring. And in fact, Paul lists it as a gift of prayer. The Holy Spirit enables supernaturally some people to pray in such a way that when you hear them pray, you're like, oh, yes, yes, that's what I'm, yeah, I can amen to that. Sometimes I know that when I have prayed for people that I do not know, I pray for things and later they ask me how I knew what, knew the things I prayed about and I, I didn't know anything. But God had allowed me to see things in their lives as I prayed for them and knew what they needed. That's supernatural. That's God. Hearing the cries of the hearts of the people of God should be one of the most beautiful things we could ever hear. I remember being at Pastor Haivung Lian's funeral, and it was not one of the most beautiful things. In fact, it was, the, it was, it was heart-wrenching. I don't, if you saw it, I think, if I even tried to recreate it right now, I think it would hurt you. The Chin people mourn, and they do it in a they wail. And we are very restrained, even in our own mourning today, but the, the Chin people are not. They laid on his coffin and they screamed to the depths of their soul in such a way that it made me cry. It made me shudder. Did it, kids? Come on, you were there. And they were like, ah! And they were like, and you're like, oh, Jesus, have mercy. Like, every time they would scream, I would just be like, ah! Oh. But what were we doing? The Bible calls us to suffer when people suffer, right? And to do what? and to rejoice when they rejoice. Hearing the cries, as I said, of the hearts of the people of God should be one of the most beautiful things. As lovely as it is for us to lift up our voices in song, albeit in different parts of harmony, I think we will see God also takes pleasure in a unified congregation, calling on God and waiting for what he has for us next. That's what they were doing. See them all there. And I know that's not a photograph of them. It's, but God, I believe, inspired an artist. The picture, they all were looking and waiting and hoping steadfastly for the thing that was coming. They knew that God had delivered the law of Pentecost. And you know what they were saying? What is he going to deliver to us? They expectedly were there waiting. Jesus said, the promise of the Father is coming. Go to Jerusalem. You will be endued with power from on high. And as they waited, they prayed in supplication to God. As it tells us, they all prayed, even 
The women were praying. This was not normally their custom. The Jews oftentimes would separate. The men would pray over here and the women were here. But the upper room was not the upper rooms, plural. It was a place of one room and there were men and women. And it was significant that they mentioned. And the women were there too. See him there? Verse 2, everybody say, suddenly. And it was suddenly for them in one way and suddenly for you even right now. But it was not sudden in its coming. It was coming for 1,479 years. Suddenly, a sound from heaven came like a rushing violet wind and it filled the house where they were sitting. The loud sound, the violent, turbulent sound, and the powerful wind that filled the atmosphere. They had known the story of creation of man. God had created him from the dust of the earth, and there he was, made from the dust of the earth. And God went into Adam, and he breathed. Everybody say, he breathed. He breathed into him the breath of life, and he became a living soul. God had through the, the works of Christ and through the events that led up to it, taken man from the dirt of his sin and he had formed a new man, a new creation and he had formed the church and there the church was on the day of Pentecost, dead like Adam in the garden and God breathed onto them and they became a living church. Amen. The breath of God had become known through the scripture as the spirit of God. The translators change it to in, in Acts. You might wonder why, why, you know, Pentecostals always say Holy Ghost all the time or what's going on? Well, they read the book of Acts a lot. That's why, because it goes from Holy Spirit to Holy Ghost. Doesn't it even, it even sounds like it preaches better, doesn't it? The Holy Ghost. But the translators changed, it's not a different word. The translator who saw this realized that it was the spirit of Christ himself. You see, the greater thing than Christ being with us in the flesh, the better than Jesus of the incarnation was the infilling of Christ himself in us. He wasn't just the Holy Spirit. He was the ghost of Jesus. It was the spirit of Jesus himself that had come to live inside the church. He was going to live and not just walk on the shores of Galilee. He was not just going to walk through the stone streets of Jerusalem. He was going to walk in every city around the world. He was going to be living inside of people. When those Christians spoke, it would be Jesus speaking to those people. When they laid hands on them to touch them, it would be Jesus laying hands on them. And so the incarnation went from being in one man to being in the church himself. The Bible says that Christ lives in the church. He doesn't live in temples made with hands. He lives in the temple that God has made for him, made from the lively stones of the church. The Bible says each one of us, we are the living stones and that God lives in us, that we are the body that he made. He is the spirit that makes us alive. Mercy. They may have supernaturally understood that God was breathing life into this new man that he had made, the church, the new creature. He was filling the church with his Holy Spirit. Jesus had breathed on his disciples at times and sent them out with power 
to heal the sick, casting out devils, seeing wonders made, that those who were doing them, it made them wonder, why would God do this through me? How could they be partakers of the divine glory? But in those times, it was like what God had done through Samson, filling him temporarily with the Spirit for great feats of unnatural superhuman strength. But without the Spirit, what was he? He was simply like any other man. The same Spirit was rushing into the upper room, into this unified band, and clothing them with permanent power that would not wane. You can't cut my hair and make it go away. You can't let me even, I can't even stain my own hands with sin. And God will depart from me as he did from Samson, whose eyes got put out. Oh no. God was going to save his people and he was going to use his people to save the world. And it would not be by works of righteousness, which they have done, but it would be the, by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And what he began, a work in them, he would complete it. He would do it. He would use them just like he used Samson in spite of his sin. He would use the church in spite of their sin. And nothing could change that behavior. It is kept by the power of God. I wish I had one of these uh, miraculous filling cups up here that never emptied out. Verse 3, there appeared unto them tongues like av or resembling fire which were being distributed among them and they rested on each of them as each person received the Holy Spirit. The receiving of the Spirit was certainly individual. He came and he filled the room, but he didn't just fill the room. He didn't just fill their gathering. He filled each and every one of them. And the Bible is clear about this over and over again. We'll be in Acts for months, maybe for a year, and you're going to see over and over God fills individuals so that we can be part of the collective. God was singling each one out in the room. He put a fire on each one of them, Ashley. He didn't just put one over the whole room. It said that everyone got one. If you were there, Ashley would have got one too. Jonathan would have got one. Little Melody would have got one. Nora would have got one. Claire, William. Wouldn't it have been cool? You look around, you're like, there's a tongue of fire on William's head. Check it out. And you'd be in the room, you're like, something's happening. God isn't just sending down his fire like he sent it in his temple. There's not just a high priest somewhere wearing bells on his garments so he can be drug out because we can't go in the presence of the holiest place of God inside the temple. No, this fire is not coming down just on the altar to receive the sacrifice for a burnt offering. No, the fire is coming down on all of us. It's not just coming down on Mount Sinai. It's not just coming down for, uh, for Moses. It's not just coming down for a man whose face would glow so much so that he would have to wear a veil over top of his face. He was sending fire down on every single person. And God sends a fire on every one of us. They themselves had been accepted by God. His fire was not devouring them as it did the enemies of God. It was filling them. They were living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. He had told them, as we read a few verses earlier in Acts, that John had baptized them with water under repentance. But one day they would be baptized with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And here they were. They, were, they had wondered, what in the world is John talking about? What is he talking about? They're like, that's what he's talking about. 
I mean, you don't pour fire on somebody and, and not hurt them. He's like, oh, the fire of God. When you get the fire of God poured on you, it doesn't devour you. It doesn't hurt you. You become eaten up with the zeal of the house of the Lord and you burn and you shine and you cannot stop. That's what it is. Woo! Sorry. I'm holding myself. You don't even understand how I'm holding myself back. If you remember, fire was seen on the flaming sword sent to kill those attempted to re-enter the Garden of Eden to eat of the tree of life. That Adam and Eve had been expelled. It was a symbol of God's approval, though, when it appeared and devoured them not. Here it was, not burning, not hurting any, but as if they were filled with the oil of the Holy Spirit, their wicks had become lit like the light that Jesus spoke of. Guys, that's, this is good. Isn't this exciting? As the giving of the law of Moses, 50 days after the death angel had passed over the firstborn of Israel, not killing one, but all of Egypt's, God descended in fire on Mount Sinai. The Moses stayed for 40 days and nights with God, came out glowing with God's words written in stone. It was the giving of the law that Israel had come, a nation with its own rule. And on Pentecost, God gave them the best law ever given. You see, the old law was good. And if there had been a law given that could have given life, it would have come through those written words, Rachel. But that law, as perfect and as lovely and as beautiful as it was, there was something better than the law. This, this sounds like a book series to me. Better than the law and better than Jesus. Provocative titles, at least, would they not be? A perfect law, what a glorious thing it was. Moses was physically affected by the experience so much. As I said before, he had to wear a veil. And if he didn't, it just hurt the eyes of the people. As glorious and magnificent as it was, there was something better. What could be better than perfect? There, there's a title, better than perfect. <laughs> what could be better than Jesus? I must go away, he said. I did great things when I was here. But when I leave, the Holy Ghost is coming and it's going to be better. You're going to do greater. So what is greater than the perfect, glorious law of God that endures forever? I'm going to tell you, it is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. You see, the Bible tells us that if all we had was rules to know what to do and not to do, it's not enough. Joy, that, that, that old man that lives in you, if, the, if he rules you, you're done. But if God takes the stony heart out of your flesh, gives you a heart of flesh, fills you with his Holy Spirit, yeah, who's going to put out, who's going to put that fire out? Nobody. Who's going to blow that out? Nobody. Who's going to make that run out? Nobody. We must all be filled with the Holy Spirit. We must be changed from the inside of our cups that the outsides of them may be clean. Verse 4, when they were all filled, that is, diffused throughout their being with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues, different languages the Spirit was giving them, the ability to speak. This is not what they were expecting. But it was God's plan all along. 
Do you know it was a tradition, and this is not in the Bible, but this is absolutely in the, written in the Jewish tradition. The Jews believed that when Moses read the law out loud, that everyone could hear it in every language, that it was a miraculous thing that happened. This was part of their history. This was part of their Independence Day celebration. I don't know if that happened. The Bible doesn't tell us that that happened, but it certainly seems like it might have been something that did happen or something that was a foreshadowing of what was to come. You see, there was a day in the world we know about in Genesis chapter 11 when all the world got together and they said, we're going to build a tower and we're going to reach God and we're going to get up there and we're going to show him what's up and we're going to pull him down and we're going to set it the record straight because we're men and we can do whatever we want. Remember that day? Genesis 11. So what did God do? He did something very similar to what we see here in Acts chapter 2. He confounded their languages. But the purpose in, in Genesis 11 of confounding their language was to bring what? Bring division. Because of what? Because what they were doing was ungodly. Their purpose was ungodly. And he that sits in the heaven laughed. He said, oh, see if you can get your job done now. You got Chinese and this and that. And you're, and, and you're like, we're done. So, okay, construction project is over. Obviously, we can't speak to each other. It's not like we're going to hurry up and learn. All the people that could talk to each other got together and they all just went their separate ways. And this is where the, the different nations of the earth and the languages were birthed. It is a confounding. What is happening here in Acts chapter 2 is a reverse babble. Because God is giving them these languages that they don't know how to speak in, in, in the midst of what? In division or unity? Unity. And he is taking and he is flipping the script on them and he is changing everything. And so there is a babel experience going on, but they're not babbling. <laughs> they're speaking in languages that the people around them not, cannot understand joy, but they can understand. Can you see this? You see this? The Jews did not miss this as it was happening. They weren't just doing something that people do, you know, uh, where you hit them in the head, and they fall on the floor, and they shake around, and, and you're like, oh, wow, you know, there's a miracle happening over here. We don't know whether they're speaking in tongues or not, or whether that's of God or not. Hey, on the day of Pentecost, they knew exactly what was going on. They were speaking, they're like, I understand exactly what's being said over there, and there's no way that guy knows that language. He's not from my country. I know he's not from, in fact, I know where he is from. He's from Galilee. How on earth is he doing that, and why? See, they were, they were just, they were like us. Here we are in the book of Acts going, why is this going on? What does this mean? What could this possibly mean? And we know what it means. The confusion of language was meant to divide, and that's what it did. What happened on the day of Pentecost was a reverse babble, a unifying event to let it be known that God would not only be the God of the Jews, he would be the God of every kindred and tribe and people and nation and every language that does not know him, every people that were strangers from him, that God was going to save them no matter what their languages were, that God could not just speak Hebrew, he could not just speak Greek, but that God knew all the languages because he had made them. There were no longer going to be one, but there were going to be two. Two nations, all the nations of the earth and the Jews together. Two of them would be together. Can we pull up that map that I asked them to put up? And maybe the rest of this will go faster, but I just wanted you to see this. Verse five, verse five. There were Jews. Everybody say Jews. 
So it's very clear that this is Jews. And do you see all these places here? <clears throat> they were devout, God-fearing men from every nation under heaven, okay? They had traveled for the pilgrimage feast to Jerusalem, okay? And, and if you look at this map, Jerusalem in the center, can you guys see this? Is this okay? I don't know if... if it's, it's maybe a little too busy, but, but you can see it. What is, what's the picture here? The picture is that's the whole known world right there. There were Jews from all of those places. Can you imagine what it would have been like? We got a little picture of it when Nathaniel and Benjamin and I were in Israel. We were there on uh, Passover. And there they, they were there. We saw people from every country of the world. And of course, there were just tourists too. But, but Jews from all over the world and tourists from all over the world. And I'm looking at these people and I'm seeing all these countries. Rachel, and it was exciting. And I'm like, wow, this must have been what it was like on the day of Pentecost. This must what have been like on Passover when all these people from all these cultures are all over the place. We're seeing uh, Philippians and South Koreans and we're seeing, you know, South Americans and we're seeing Russians and we're seeing all these people. We're just like, wow, this is amazing. And it says they were living in Jerusalem. Once again, translation, they were staying there. Pastor Nang will tell, he says, where, where am I living when I'm in Ohio? And I'm like, living? He means, where's he staying? Verse six, and when the sound was heard, a great, cow, great crowd gathered. They were bewildered because each one was hearing those in the upper room speaking in his own language and dialect. So they were speaking real languages, real languages that could be what? Could be understood. Getting together and speaking in tongues in a church when no one can understand anything is fruitless. In fact, Paul forbids it and says, don't do that. Don't get together and everyone speaking. No, how can anyone say amen? What kind of confusion and nonsense is that? Don't do that. If you're going to do that, have someone who can do what? Who can tell you what they're saying, who can interpret but be, be, be cautious on that. Do that only by two and by three and, and judge whether that's real or of God or not. And we'll, we're going to be talking about this through the scriptures because this comes up over and over and over again in the book of Acts. But wouldn't it have been amazing just for a minute, you know, we, we can get into those other doctrinal things later. But wouldn't it be amazing to, to see this, to be like, now this is an interesting miracle. Like we've seen Jesus walk on the water, divide the loaves and fishes. We've seen him raise the dead. But now what's he doing? He's giving them supernatural uh, abilities to speak languages they can't speak. I mean, that's a strange miracle. What a scene. You can't fake that. You can fake God healed me from a headache. You can fake God delivered me from the cancer that nobody can see. You can, you can fake all kinds of things, but you, you can't just speak in a whole other language. That takes a lot of uh, work. They were completely astonished. Saying, look, are not all those that are speaking Galileans? The new disciples gathered on the day of Pentecost were from Galilee. How do they know how to speak the language of the whole world? Verse 8, this is how that each of us hears in our, then how is it that each of us hears this in our own native dialects? Among them, there were Parthians, Medes, Elamites, the, the, the people of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontius, and Asia Minor, and you wonder, you know, what's all about? That's, that's all these places. Look at all of them. All over, the, all over the world here. And they were proselytes. Proselytes mean those that believed something but were brought into the Jewish church. They were Gentile converts to Judaism. Verse 11, Cretes and Arabians, we hear them speaking in our native tongues. And, and, and what were they talking about? They were talking about the wonderful works 
of God. Who knows what they were saying, but it was, it was about how good God is. That's why I had Sister Andrea testify. What's she talking about? She's talking about the wonderful works of God. He's been good to me. He's blessed me. I'm thankful. They were beside themselves with amazement. They were greatly perplexed, saying one to another, what could this mean? They immediately wanted to know what this strange new thing was and what it could mean. We will talk more about this later, but we're going to talk about this one thing, Isaiah 56. If you want to read this, he promised them in Isaiah chapter 56, you know what, I'm just going to, I'll go quick through this in verse 8. The Lord God which gathers the outcasts of Israel, yet will I gather others. Everybody say others. Others to him beside them that are gathered. He hinted to them through Isaiah that there would be a day when it would not just be the Jews. It would be the Jews and everybody else. So I'm going to talk just a little bit as we close here about Israel. And I'm going to do it in such a way to not cause any confusion. I'm just going to let the Apostle Paul tell us. Because stone four is this. God has come to save the whole world. That's the Jews and everybody else. I say and everybody else. And you know the deal is, Jews are our enemies right now. There are enemies in the gospel. What were the Jews doing? They were killed, they killed Jesus, right? And they, they were killing the disciples. They were trying to shut the church down. They were enemies. But Paul sets us straight. They were, but they will not always be. In fact, the fourth foundation stone is that God is going to save them through us. Isn't that going to be awesome? Pray for Israel. So I'm going to read this and I, I, I'll see, I, I won't go too super long. I'll try not to. If you want to read this with your family, read it, think about it. This is important. Everyone around you is going to be asking you this question. What's going on? We don't know what's going to happen in Israel. It can get worse. Take him to Romans 11. Romans 11, 1. I say then, he, Paul is good at asking questions. He said, has God cast away his people? His answer is God forbid. Everybody say God forbid. Right, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Does God hate Israel? Did he cast them off? Everybody say, God forbid. And Paul's like, it's a good thing because I'm an Israelite. <laughs> Paul's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's, he's of the tribe of Benjamin, right? He said, God forbid, for I'm an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. I hope he hasn't cast us off because I'm an Israelite. I'm a Jew. God had not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Woe, what not that the scripture said of Elias, he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've digged down your altars. I'm left alone and they seek my life. He's like, they're all a bunch of heathens and they're enemies and, I, and they're all gone. And what did God say? No, they're not. What, God, what did God answer him? Verse four, I have reserved myself 7,000 men who have not bowed my knee to the image of Baal. Even so, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. I'll sum this up for you. He's saying, I'm saving Israel in spite of their sinfulness. And I'm not saving them because they're uh, physically uh, related to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm saving them because I'm good and I'm God. And that's it. They're not saved because they're a part of somebody's uh, family tree. What then? Israel has not obtained that which she seeks for, but the election has. 
And the rest were blinded. According it is written, God has given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear, even unto this day. If you remember Jesus, they would say, why do you keep talking in parables? And he goes, because if I plainly say what I'm saying, then they're going to understand me and I don't want them to understand me. Why? <laughs> he, one of the missions of Jesus was to judge the Jews. David said, let their table be made a snare, a trap, a stumbling block, and recompense them. Let their eyes be darkened that they might not see, and bow down their back away. Verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? He's saying, did they fall down so they can die and be gone? And he says, no. Everybody say, God forbid. But rather, that their, through their fall, salvation is come to the Gentiles. So can you see this? The Jews had to fall in a pit. So that the Gentiles could be invited in to Christ. To provoke them to jealousy. And you go, what in the world is God talking about? Hey, I'm just going to let God deal with that, right? So the Jews would not obey. They wouldn't pay attention. God brings in the Gentiles so that Jews can be like, well, why is he, you know, he's all with all them and, and not us. And maybe we should join the party. <laughs> Now, if the fall of the, them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my office. If by any means I provoke to emulation them which are my flesh that might save some of them. He's saying, if me preaching to you and seeing you get saved caused some of them to come to Christ, wouldn't that be a hoot? And no, I'm not trying to make my own message Bible, but that's exactly what he's saying. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling the world, what shall the receiving of them be from life unto death? For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is holy too. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches are broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them with the partakers of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, boast not thyself against the branches. This is a command from God. We should not be hating on Israel. We should not be glad that the downfall. We should not be going, well, they're getting what's coming to them. Good for them. It says, boast not against the branches. Boast, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root you. I'm going to skip down. Verse 22. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell. Severity, but the goodness to the goodness. If thou continue with goodness, otherwise thou shalt too be cut off. And they also, if they abide not, if they abide still in their unbelief, shall be grafted in. For God is able to graft them again. I'm going to skip down to verse 26. And so all Israel shall be saved. Isn't that cool? It is written, there shall come out of Zion a deliverer, and he shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant to them, and I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, verse 28, they are enemies for your sakes. They're hurting you now, they're enemies. But as touching election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. For the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. For in time past, you didn't believe God, yet you've obtained mercy. Even so now, they didn't believe that through your mercy, through what they see me doing through them, for you, they can obtain mercy. God's going to save the Jews through the church. Isn't that awesome? For God hath concluded all in unbelief that he might have mercy on all. 
Oh, the depths of riches, both of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. His ways are past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who hath first given to him? And it shall be recompensed again. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I'll end by reading this last verse. And we'll, this is where we'll jump off next week. But others, everybody say others. Others started laughing and joking and ridiculing them, saying, these guys are just, they've just had too much to drink. These guys are full of wine. So foundation stone four is the gospel is for all people, even the Jews. In fact, especially the Jews who God elected as his people first. He is using the Gentiles to reach them, to show them their proper humility. And our salvation is not about anything except the grace of God. Can we say thanks be to God? Thank you so much for joining us today. I pray your time with us was very encouraging. If it was, consider sending us a note and also consider partnering with us.